Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 17th Century Warfare, Episode 8. The last time we did an episode of this, I think it was about July 2018 or something, which, if you're listening to this in the future, doesn't really matter all that much to you, but it should be said that we have had a very, very long break in this very, very disorganized 30 Years War series. But don't worry. All of that is about to change, because for the next several years, in fact, we will be sticking readily and faithfully to this story of the Thirty Years' War. We'll be getting in-depth with it like never before, and I'm really, really looking forward to bringing it all to you guys. So, if you're interested to find out more about exactly our plans for this series, make sure you listen to the little introduction episode we released pretty much the same day as this episode, to coincide with our brand new start and our brand new season of When Diplomacy Fails. If you weren't aware, my name is Zach Twomley. This is When Diplomacy Fails, and if you're not aware of either of those things, and I don't really know how you got here in the first place, but if you're not aware, then we have been looking at the Thirty Years' War before. We looked at it a while ago, in 2013-14, to but because I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants and didn't really know what I was doing, I was learning as much as you guys were as we were going along. As a result of that, the story got a bit confusing sometimes. This series isn't just to rectify that. It's also to mark the fact that it's pretty much 400 years since this conflict erupted, which is pretty significant in of itself. But don't worry, I'm not being a glutton for punishment and sticking to those anniversaries as I've done before. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time anyway, because I find the era so fascinating. Also... I have in fact got a book coming out on the Thirty Years' War, which will be based very much on this series. It'll be called For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War, and it should be released in January 2020. So if you're listening to this in the future, go and order that book, and I'll send you a signed copy personally. Just head on over to doidfpodcast.com and click on the shop, and the rest will be history. If you're listening to this before January 2020, you can pre-order this book so that once it is available, I will send it out to you. Again, personally signed by yours, truly. Now, you may have some other questions as well, such as, if this is the Thirty Years' War, why are we talking about 17th century warfare, and how are we on episode 8? Well, as I said, we've already covered a few of these episodes. The previous seven are available in the feed, and I had debated for a while releasing them all in one day today and keeping it all tidy, but... I thought that would be a bit ridiculous. If you really want to listen to those previous episodes, go and listen to them. But if you don't really want to bother or you just want a crash course introduction in them, that's what that small introduction episode is for that came out just before this. So that we're all on the same page, you should know exactly where we have come from. With the 17th Century Warfare series, we've been trying to place the Thirty Years' War and also several important military innovations in their proper context. There's not really much point in jumping right into something like this without taking a moment to appreciate exactly who the major characters were, what the major innovations were, and what warfare looked like. Because the Thirty Years' War, as the name suggests, was a conflict, a series of interconnected conflicts. And while we often aren't all that preoccupied with which army marched where or what general made this decision it's still an important thing to delve into. We should still know what we mean when we talk about armies fighting one another, especially because this can change throughout the different decades. 
Because of that, I thought 17th century warfare was an important place to start. And in the next 15 episodes, well, we've already covered 7, so in the next 8 episodes, we will be covering what remains of the story of 17th century warfare. I know we've got a lot of housekeeping done already, but just a few tiny bits left. If you'd like to go and follow this podcast on Twitter, at WDF Podcast, or check us out on Facebook, that'll be really appreciated. Just search When Diplomacy Fails. There's a group and there's a page, so go and check them both out. By doing that, you'll be able to keep in touch and keep on level with everything that we release in social media. And we will be quite active in social media because for the next little while, that is for four years while we do our history PhD, our schedule will be significantly stripped back. For regular listeners, you'll be getting an episode every two weeks, which means that a new installment of the 30 Years War will be in your downloads for free every single Wednesday. However, if you are a listener of this podcast on Patreon and you're paying $5 a month, then you'll also get the series Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which I've talked an awful lot about. And if you'd like to hear more about that, listen to the introduction episode that just came out before. You're probably noticing a pattern at this stage. But yes, by paying $5 a month, you will be able to access one episode every week, essentially. It'll go interchangeably between this series, The 30 Years' War, and Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which is an account of Poland in the 1700s. In addition to this, you should know that we've changed up our rewards a little bit. You see, in the past, for $2 patrons and above, you were able to access ad-free episodes of this podcast, also getting the scripts attached to match. Something which occurred to me, though, is that there isn't really much point in giving you guys these scripts when I am at the same time trying to sell you a book. So because of this, you won't be getting scripts anymore. And I'm sorry if that really upsets you, but as I said, that is what the book is for. Instead of those scripts, $2 patrons will still get ad-free episodes, but they'll also get the episodes two days earlier. So you'll get them on Monday instead of Wednesday, which is when I've chosen to release the episodes for regular listeners. This means that patrons will still have a good amount of advantages. They just won't be able to read things that they would have got in the book anyway. Hopefully all these changes make sense. They're only really minor ones. By what I've seen, most of you don't actually access the scripts anyway. But in case you're wondering where they are, I thought I'd lay that out for you in this first episode. I know we've already talked loads about different things, so I want to just get into this. But before we do that, we should probably... (laughs) actually explain what we've talked about before. Otherwise, you might not know who Maurice of Orange actually is or why he is so important to our narrative. Well, thankfully, there's a handy little refresher course here because in the last episode, in episode 7, we looked at the military drill and the surprising origins of tactics like fire by rank and mass volley methods used by musketeers throughout the 17th century and beyond. We discovered that these tactics were in fact first employed in battle by the Japanese of all people, which was a pretty interesting revelation, and they reached Europe a few decades later. The Dutch in particular seemed to have an affinity for experimenting with new ideas, so they absorbed them rather quickly. Inspired by the countermarch ideas of antiquity, figures like Maurice of Nassau and William Lodwick pushed repeatedly for a form of the army's approach to doing battle, and they believed that through constant practice and mastery of commands and movements, assimilated through drill manuals which were increasingly made available, the average soldier could be transformed into something far more disciplined and organised than his predecessors. We acknowledged in episode 7 and previous episodes before that, that these ideas reached each state differently, and in some cases... They weren't all that revolutionary at all. But the enthusiastic Dutch adoption of these tactics encouraged other countries and their armies, like the French and the Swedes, to advance the gains already made by improving upon them. At the turn of the 17th century, warfare was definitely changing, and of that there could be no doubt. Men marched according to a set of orders, and they operated their weapons according to a set of movements, which had been practiced and then re-practiced, until the actions felt less like orders and more like muscle memory. The soldiery didn't have to think, that was the whole point. Their bodies and brains were connected, plugged into this new way of doing warfare. But that did not mean, of course, that the old way of doing warfare 
otherwise known as the Spanish Terquio system, was suddenly obsolete or vanished altogether. I do have to apologise because last time for episode 7, having absolutely no idea how long we were going to leave the narrative then, we left you on something of a cliffhanger. You see, Morris of Nassau had just implemented a load of these reforms. He'd taught his soldiers how to use the countermarch. he drilled them very well in these new tactics and innovations. And a great test of all of these developments was about to take place. And it is to the scene of this test, the battleground at the Battle of Newport in summer 1600, that I now take you. So without any further ado, I'd like to say, first and foremost, welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails and to the Thirty Years' War. It's been a nice little break, although it doesn't really feel like I got much of a break, but I'm more than ready and able to get into the Thirty Years' War now, and I can think of no better place to start than the Battle of Newport. So thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The army, which Maurice of Nassau and others had spent several years reforming and preparing, was ready for its first real test. Newport and Dunkirk were two Spanish port towns of prime importance to the raiding and piracy industry, which cost Dutch shipping dearly. If these two piracy havens could be removed, Dutch incomes would increase, but not only that, there was reason to believe that a successful campaign would only deepen the sense of disaffection within the Spanish Netherlands, rousing the people to revolt against Spain and in support of the Dutch Republic. One of the primary motives, though, as the subsequent course of events would make clear, was the pursuit of contributions from occupied lands to pay for the ongoing war with Spain and reduce the tax burden on the Dutch citizenry. The campaign was significant for other reasons as well. Not only was it Maurice of Nassau's best chance to test his drilled soldiers since he was in command, but the entire political edifice of the Dutch Republic had been emptied for the sake of the campaign. All 30 of the politicians of the Dutch States General had come on board the ships for the campaign from the 17th of June 1600. Had this flotilla been captured by the Spanish then Madrid would have in its hands the commander and head of the Dutch army and navy, as well as its entire political apparatus. Why then were the Dutch taking such immense risks and marching out, sailing out, to meet the enemy, politicians in tow? The answer had much to do with the Dutch confidence, not only in their ability, but also in the weakness and instability of the Spanish system. The army of Flanders, it was well known, was demoralised, underpaid and isolated. In the 1590s alone, more than 20 mutinies were known to have ripped through the ranks of the Spanish Netherlands army. These soldiers were not merely militia troops. They were, or at least they tended to be when on their best behaviour, professional soldiers of the highest calibre, renowned and feared throughout Europe for that very reason. The States General had banked on the Spanish holding back and not daring to launch any invasion of the Republic, since the revolt among Spanish soldiers that followed would surely lead to Madrid's unravelling. This was what was believed, and all evidence to the contrary was ignored. These politicians, its military head, 10,000 infantry, 1,200 cavalry, and 1,200 ships were supposed to sail around the coast of Flanders and make a direct attack against Dunkirk, but bad weather scuppered these plans. The Dutch would instead march over land to their destination, a distance of 80 miles. Yet as it happened, the Spanish launched a counter-attack while Maurice was marching south to the first target of Newport, and the States General was staying put in Ostend. Both of these towns were along the coast of Flanders, and the primary goal of the States General at this stage wasn't merely to use this position to block the piracy of the enemy. The ulterior motive, as we learned, was to levy contributions from the enemy lands. This process was accelerated by a series of angry letters which the state's general members had prepared for the native Flanders towns while at sea. Fire and wrath was declared en route unless the sword was turned away by the promise of regular gold from these Flanders towns. 
Contributions were designed to ease the burden on the home Dutch population, but in addition to this, each of the 30 states' general politicians in attendance in Ostend hoped to get personally rich for their efforts as well. They believed that Flanders was ripe for the taking, and that a swift campaign there would tip her people over the edge and into the arms of the waiting republic next door. Yet as we said, contrary to the expectations of the politicians in tow, the Spanish did counterattack. By summer 1600, the state of Spanish rule in their Netherlands region had indeed been in some trouble. As it happened, the event which saved their regime there was the Dutch invasion, which moved the government of the Archdukes to appeal to the dissenting voices and urge cooperation in the midst of a crisis. This appeal seemed to do the trick. The soldiery would engage with and repel the invading Dutch, and by this action they would demonstrate in the plainest terms their worth to the Brussels government and to the Flemish people. Archduke Albert was on the case, and he had roused nearly 8,000 soldiers to battle, all men of professional stock and well-versed in the Spanish Turkio formation tactic, which had won them so much ground in the past. Along the way, Albert picked up a great deal more men from the loyal garrisons, especially when it was learned that Albert was promising plunder to his men in his employ if they did their duty. By late June of 1600, Albert's forces were roughly equal to that of Maurice's, and he was marching northwards to cut between his force and the state's general's officers in Ostend. Incredibly, neither Maurice nor his political masters had predicted such a manoeuvre, as they had bought fully into the idea that the Spanish could not afford to attack, or they would see their unpaid and underappreciated forces melt away before the battle even began. It wasn't until the 1st of July that the States General learned of their predicament. If Albert marched his army to Ostend, he could well put the entire governing apparatus of the Dutch Republic under siege, and perhaps even storm the anemically defended Ostend before Maurice could arrive. In this crisis, the statesman urgently sent for Maurice, according to the official resolution reached at this time, four or five separate letters, in which they earnestly begged and admonished His Excellency to put his army in good order and not to divide his forces. This, in short, was a command for Maurice to abandon any previous plans for a siege of Newport, one of the first goals of the original campaign, and to fly to the defence of the politicians by meeting the Spanish head-on. For his part, Maurice resented the fact that the states had so explicitly demanded this campaign as if the Republic could not be preserved in any other way. But Maurice was now forced to respond to the enemy's moves, which was not a good strategic position to be in, and he clearly had no choice but to fight the Spanish, since a withdrawal by sea would have been disastrous. Various ideas were put forward about the best ways to meet the Spanish in battle, with some urging him to throw up field defences, but Maurice replied that he would give battle. That we must strike, that blood must be shed this day, that we need no other defence than the pikes and muskets of my troops. Maurice declared that he placed his trust after God in perpetual drilling of the troops, or in the words of one of his generals, in that skill and dexterity we presumed to excel our enemies in, which was the apt and agile motions of our battalions. Maurice was keenly aware that all the years of planning and training, all the years of theorising, and all the years of investment were about to be put to the test. If Maurice failed, if his men failed to defeat the enemy, then all the naysayers would have been validated, and Maurice's reputation ruined, not to mention the reputations of those men like William Lodwick, who had spent some time studying classical battle methods for the sake of days like these. The circumstances were far from ideal. The ground would be sandy, the numbers of the enemy cannot be precisely known, and the pressure from 30 fawning politicians added to the tension. But Maurice had no choice. It was time to place his men at the mercy of the drilling. On the 2nd of July, 1600, they lined up to do battle with their Spanish foe. Before we investigate that battle with our microscope, it is worth asking an important question. Exactly who was this foe that the Dutch under Maurice of Nassau was about to face? 
You'll remember that in previous episodes of this mini-series, we've touched on the military revolution theory. And you'll also remember that a key point of this thesis rests on the idea that before Maurice of Nassau and before Gustavus Adolphus, warfare was somewhat stagnant in terms of the decisiveness of the victory and professionalism of the soldiers. Until these experts in military tactics came along, and until the drill became the norm, soldiers rarely accomplished their set tasks, we are told. In addition, the Spanish example and the inflexibility of their Terchio system was upheld by Michael Roberts, the creator of the military revolution theory, to provide a contrast between the inefficiency of old and the productivity of the new. We need to first examine what is meant by the Terchio and how it differed from Maurice's forces. The Terchios were the first infantry units to make use of a pike, musket, sword and arquebus weapon in the one group. Each Terchio was composed of a certain number of recruits, interspersed with a core grouping of veterans or older soldiers, designed to keep the whole unit together in times of strain. This method of training the men by having them learn from the more experienced soldiers within the Terchio was a major feature of the Spanish system, but recruits were also trained in the major troop bastions of Spain's European Empire, with Brussels and Milan serving above all as central recruitment and training grounds. The claim normally made is that the Spanish system for training recruits was not as refined or rigid as the drill adopted by Maurice of Nassau, which controlled every aspect of the soldiers' movements and which provided step-by-step instructions for each manoeuvre. Spanish recruits, it was said, learned by osmosis and by adopting the practices of that aforementioned corps of veterans. Something which gave the Terchio its characteristic appearance was the pike. The pike and the men holding them served as the backbone of the Terchio as its main form of melee defence and theoretically as a well-oiled machine capable of resisting cavalry charge as much as the charge of soldiery. It was the task of the pike men to resist, but also to protect, as they shielded the arquebusiers from those same dangers while they reloaded. Such ideas make sense, but it can still seem jarring and somewhat misplaced for pikemen to play such a prominent role in 16th and 17th century warfare. But the Spanish had not invented the pike or the tight formations of pike squares. That honour belonged to the Swiss. According to Balcus, the Milanese ambassador to the Swiss Confederation from the years 1500 to 1504, When the Swiss start out to war, they swear a solemn oath that every man who sees one of his comrades desert or act the coward in battle will cut him down on the spot, for they believe that the courage and persistency of warriors is greater when they, out of fear of death, do not fear death. They begin a battle after they have formed their phalanx according to the old methods of war, and steadfast and fearless, they are almost indifferent to life and death. They threw away the shield when they had formerly been accustomed to its use, like all other nations. They learned through experience that the shield could not in any way withstand the power of the phalanx and the lance. We have seen the influence of ancient Rome in the methods of William Lodwick and Maurice of Nassau, and here again is evidence that the opponents of the Dutch took their inspiration from warriors who were themselves inspired to form the phalanx according to the old methods of war. A well-disciplined square of pikemen could and did defeat everything in its path. Swiss independence was literally achieved by the point of the pike when the Dukes of Austria were defeated in successive battles throughout the 14th century. This was the beginning of the Swiss Confederation, powered by ambitious Swiss Dukes and defended by their ingenious use of the 18-foot pike. The Swiss legend of efficiency was only matched by their fearsome reputation and bravery. They would challenge a force of any size, they would execute any prisoners and any garrisons which came into their hands. As that above ambassador believed, they were almost indifferent to life and death, and Balcus was by no means the only figure to believe so. Naturally, having learned with the Swiss ability to harness the pike to its full effect, the neighbours of the Swiss began to plagiarise their techniques. But the methods of warfare did not sit still for long. 
Although Balkus was plainly in awe of the Swiss legend during his service, the opening years of the 1500s can in fact be seen as the point when the pike legend began to wear off, thanks in large part to the rise of the firearm. As Frank Tallett recorded in his book War and Society in Early Modern Europe, At Marinano, 1515, La Bacocha, 1522, and Pavia, 1525, pikemen proved vulnerable to gunfire, and therefore no army could do without arquebusiers, both to protect its own pikemen and to threaten the enemies. The proportion of handgunners to pikemen rose inexorably, increasing in the case of the Spanish regular infantry to Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And in three by the 1570s, and almost parity by the year 1600, while the Dutch muster lists, unusually accurate records of their type, revealed that by the 1590s, an infantry company of 135 men included 74 handgunners, 44 arquebusiers and 30 musketeers, and only 45 pikemen. As Frank Tallett notes, the arrival of the more capable firearm did not mean the death of the pike, because arquebusiers and musketeers were still vulnerable to cavalry charge or other infantry as they reloaded. It should also be said that pikes were not just defensive weapons, they were used offensively, and even up to the mid-1600s, commanders were still using the pike as an offensive weapon. They would be the force of the infantry charge. And it wasn't always the case that muskets were considered the best offensive weapon either. Commanders were still experimenting, and in that early phase, it would be too simplistic to simply claim that all commanders had adopted the firearm over the pike. Notwithstanding the decline, pikes did not just instantly fall out of favour. It was therefore evident that a combination of the two arms would produce the best results, and that was what singled out the Spanish for their use of such combined arms. The Turgio was the result. But what exactly was the Turgio? In terms of weaponry, the Turgio was designed to emphasise the strengths of the pike and guard the weakness of the musket. Leaving men standing in the open while they reloaded their weapon was obviously an invitation for a cavalry charge, and thus disaster, so the Turgio system enveloped all the defensive postures of a pike with the stopping power and reach of the musket. In some respects, the idea wasn't revolutionary. The system was similar to that of medieval armies which had placed the archers behind the front line of Malay soldiers. Archers were vulnerable to other Malay soldiers and cavalry, so they effectively followed and stayed behind the cover which the Malay soldiers provided. The Turgios were a similar formula, except the musket and pike soldiers were tied together and taught to move and fight as one. They fought as squares, but the fact that they moved with their pikes in formation meant that it was sometimes difficult to move at a quick pace. This left them vulnerable in later years to light mobile artillery that would punch right through their squares. 3,000 men populated an average turgio, with musketeers at the front and pikemen holding the hollow centre. 
The hole in the centre enabled the wounded or reloading men to withdraw into the centre of the square behind the cover of the pikes, and even while the pikemen stood behind the musketeers and marched with pikes upright, their long weapons would be more than capable of reaching over the shoulders of the musketeers in front of them and stabbing at the enemy. In earlier forms of the Turgio, swordsmen armed with javelins would also stand in the centre and the number of musketeers would be fewer. As the 1500s advanced, though, the combination of pike and musket was felt to be superior to any other. The Turgio squares sometimes drew their musketmen out and lined them up if the opportunity presented itself, but generally formation was kept, and this formation effectively won Spain its European empire. As or Trevor Davies in his book The Golden Century of Spain noted, This was the tactical system, simple but frightfully effective, that helped to make the Spanish army invincible, and the models which all Europe sought more or less to ineffectively copy. It is a striking illustration of the rudimentary character of the military mind that it took a century and a half to find an adequate counterblast to this system. Considering the startling ingenuity of their combat systems and the staying power of the Turgios, it is surprising that Spain was one of the major targets of Michael Roberts' thesis. Evidently, existing as they did on the cutting edge of military innovation, the Spanish had no need of a military revolution which replaced their Turgios with muskets and focused solely on the volume of fire as the new formations intended to do. As late as the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634, the Turgio system remained practical and highly effective, in many respects serving as Spain's saving grace until the defeat of Rocroy in 1643, which compelled its commanders to reimagine their approach. In short, the military revolution was far from as simple a case as Roberts claimed in 1957. While Maurice of Nassau and Gustavus Adolphus brought important new ideas to warfare, in the form of illustrated war manuals and the use of light artillery respectively, it was not axiomatic that these new ideas would supersede the old. Moving away from the Turgio, a reliable method of warfare for over a century, based on principles which could be traced to the High Middle Ages, could only take place following a period of intensive reflection. Furthermore, it required that the firearm be sophisticated enough to make up for its lack of melee capabilities with the sheer volume of shot it could put down. These latter ingredients, better firearm drills and more technologically advanced muskets, were the true motivating factors behind the later Spanish adoption of the fire-by-rank approach, rather than the ingenuity of Spain's Dutch or Swedish foes. Yet it wasn't only Michael Roberts who created the myth of Spanish lethargy and military inefficiency. The historian Fernando González de León made some important points in his article examining the actual military proficiency of the Spanish Habsburg armies in the 1500s and the role they played in inspiring other military institutions across Europe. Yet, as de León also noted, the actual historical fact of Spanish achievements under the Turgio were undermined in some senses by the prevailing generalizations created in some works by Spanish historians themselves. One example which de Leon gives is that erroneous picture painted of Spanish infantry in Rafael Pudu's 1982 study Il Soldato Gentiliomo. De Leon wrote on Pudu's study that his inquiry into the Spanish military ethos of the 16th century presents the Spanish officer largely as a crusading cavalier with an abiding love for his sword and a pronounced contempt for modern firearms, in other words, a Don Quixote. Don Quixote was a character from a novel written in the first few years of the 1600s, which told the story of a delusional Spaniard who went on a journey to resurrect the ideas of chivalry and knightly customs, and ignored all evidence which painted that nostalgic era of European society as dead and gone. Don Quixote became the perfect archetype of the Spanish soldier, since it was what the rest of Europe knew, even while they also knew that the Spanish had conquered an empire on which the sun never set, and that Spanish military might 
had elevated that kingdom to the first rank of powers by the close of the 16th century. The Spaniard was therefore akin to Don Quixote. He was delusional, in denial of the realities of how society had progressed, and completely incapable of adapting to the times. His life was a backward one, which longed in vain for the old times, and which did nothing to prepare for the new developments in technology, science, or, critically, in warfare. He struggled hopelessly with the outdated pike, and he ignored new developments in the technological sphere, thus making him vulnerable to his innovative neighbours. To an extent, the myth of Spanish inefficiency laid down in the military revolution was the product of the Spanish black legend. We need only look at other impressions of Spain, aside from the military generalizations, that the Spanish were conservative to a destructive degree, that they were champions of the Inquisition, they were ruled by evil and corrupted kings, they despised personal freedom and loved restrictive absolutism, they loathed hard work and preferred to embrace the siesta, while their sprawling empire sank into so many seas. If Spain had been the wasting, lazy and ignorant power that Michael Roberts and others implied, then Spanish might would not have been so feared and loathed during the Thirty Years' War, or previously in the 1500s. As Geoffrey Parker points out, champions of the military revolution often forget that it was the Spanish Terjio system which achieved the most shattering victories over its enemies during the conflict. Consider the battles of White Mountain in 1620, or Nordlingen in 1634, for instance, and how the primacy of the apparently old Spanish tactics carried the day. The list of works which examine Spanish tactics and military primacy during the early modern period of Europe are surprisingly few in number, and most tend to be in Spanish, which does nothing to reduce the impressions which English-speaking enthusiasts might have about how Spanish inefficiency was replaced by the Dutch, Swedish and even English examples, with the latter, the English example, being given by Cromwell's new model army. Several treatises written by Spanish officers who fought against the Dutch also testify to what the Spanish valued and looked for in potential recruits, and what made the best officers. As Fernando González de León noted, These treatises describe the ideal officer, his duties, his behaviour and his education. The writers constructed a model officer who was certainly an indigenous Hidalgo, but very different from the nostalgic and impractical warrior of the Don Quixote tradition. He was instead a soldier who regarded the military as an independent profession, of which highly trained technicians earned their commissions through merit, that is, a kind of leader that Maurice of Nassau would have feared. Indeed, Maurice of Nassau did have a healthy respect for Spanish arms, and he could not have guaranteed that his well-drilled army would even be victorious, even while he declared his intentions to rely on their expertise in the weapons and tactics drill. Previous Spanish works and commentaries on the situation emphasised the need for a merit-based officer corps, for constant reform and, interestingly enough, for inspiration to be taken from the examples of the Ancients, a reference to the classical tactics of antiquity and the staying power of the Roman military example. Just as it had inspired Maurice of Nassau to institute a complex and detailed drilling system, so too had it moved several Spanish military writers to urge aspiring officers to look to past examples for inspiration. These works appeared over the 1560s and 70s, and in the 1580s, Newer, more detailed works on the nature of warfare and what a Spanish Terjio commander was expected to do and the qualities he was expected to possess were also disseminated. These works deserve some mention to demonstrate the parallels between Maurice of Nassau's drilling and the pre-existing Spanish commitment to professionalism and discipline which had carried them so far. One Spanish work, published in 1585, called The Mirror of Military Discipline, was translated into several languages, and one extract of it reads thus, Because the military is such a noble undertaking, it must have its rules and precepts, which are the foundation of the military art. Just as no one can practice medicine, law or theology who has not studied in those faculties and is not learned in those disciplines, so those who are not learned in the military discipline should not be allowed to give orders and lead in war. 
This discipline serves the officer as a loyal advisor, a light in the darkness, and a guide on a difficult and uncertain road. Other treatises, like 1590's The Perfect Captain, Instructed in the Military Discipline and the New Science of Artillery, or 1592's more streamlined title, Practical Manual of Artillery, provide highly detailed and technical guides on the best ways of making use of the latest advances in military technology and tactics. These are not, in other words, books produced by a tired and lethargic military system. They are written by professional soldiers on the cutting edge of military innovation and thinking, and their works were passed about Europe, just as the later Dutch illustrated drill manuals would be. The Spanish books emphasised the central importance of artillery, and outlined the essential qualifications of a Spanish officer in military service. Aristocratic, noble birth was not on the list of these qualifications, and indeed, the books all rallied against the selling of commissions as much as they emphasised the need for a good education in arithmetic, rhetoric and history. One final example of a published Spanish treatise, released in 1593, further establishes this point. This treatise was entitled The Science, Discourse and Rule of the Military, and was written by a 27-year veteran of the Turquios of Flanders who had marched to the Low Countries and fought against the Dutch since the outbreak of the revolt. This veteran's name, Captain Martin de Aguilus, and while he remains virtually unknown, Aguilus, according to his books, seems to have invented the entire concept of the military drill, which Maurice has been credited for. Considering the fact that Aguilus's book was released two years before Maurice and his peers began brainstorming about the best way to reform their armies, it is certainly possible that Maurice copied the lessons laid down in his book. Regarding Aguilus's book, Fernando González de Leon commented that Like Maurice, Aguilus champions constant drill and training for the soldiers in the style of the ancient Romans, as well as an increase in the number of muskets and musketeers in the Turgios. His major claim to fame must rest on his detailed description of the countermarch, considered by many historians the tactical centrepiece of the early modern military revolution. This complex battlefield manoeuvre consisted of aligning long, three deep rows of soldiers to shoot, yield their pace at the front of those behind them, and then to load and come forward to fire again in order to maintain a steady rate of fire. The origin, application and usefulness of this manoeuvre remains controversial, but most historians, following Michael Roberts, have overlooked the Gilus and assigned the intellectual fatherhood of the countermarch to Maurice of Nassau, even though the publication of Aguilus's treatise antedates Maurice's first letter on the subject by two years. It is entirely possible that Maurice and his theorising peers were unaware of Aguilus's work. Considering its striking parallels with the Dutch innovation, so the science, discourse and rule of the military book must be mentioned when talking of military innovation in the era, not least because it has been largely forgotten by so many historians of the period. Considering the diffusion of ideas and the enthusiasm for innovation, we cannot ignore the possibility that Maurice or William Lodwick read Gilus's book. What is important to note, however, is that the Spanish system as a whole seemed to have ignored these ideas, preferring to stick to what they knew in the Terrio rather than reinvent the wheel. Furthermore, the Dutch innovations are no less significant merely because they may have been conceived by someone else first. What Maurice did do was commission the publication of detailed illustrative manuals that provided detailed instructions and pictures for each stage of every weapon drill. And yet, before commissioning such books or acquiring such a reputation for innovation, Maurice of Nassau would first have to defeat his Spanish nemesis. And so it is to that battlefield near the town of Newport on the 2nd of July, 1600, that we return now. Sometimes the best perspectives are those given by the enemy, and with this in mind, it is worth hearing the account given after the event by an Italian soldier in Spanish service, who noted that Maurice had assembled and drawn up his troops. Very well. Placing in front a corps of musketeers, and in front of these musketeers some 
six pieces of artillery. Behind these musketeers stood two more squadrons of over 1,000 pikemen, each one with 500 pikes and with the cavalry outside on the wings. All were in very good order. In addition, he has placed 70 or 80 musketeers upon certain sand hills to flank our troops. On Maurice's side, one of the captains later gave the following account of the battle. Our infantry advanced toward the enemy. The enemy's cavalry, seeing our men advancing in such good order because they were well supported, wanted to take refuge among their infantry in the dunes, but their own ranks broke, and seeing themselves still pressed by our cavalry, they decided on headlong flight. The hail of volleys then began to cease. Fortunately for the Dutch leader, the Battle of Newport was a victory for Maurice and his well-drilled Dutchmen. Accounts of the battle do not mention specifically the tactic of the countermarch, but they do imply that this tactic was used, and that the Dutch fired their weapons in the front ranks before walking to the back to reload. This is implied in the image described by the aforementioned Italian, who described blocks of 4,000 musketeers in one unit. Unless these men fired and then went to the back, Maurice never would have allowed them to group together like this, or they would have been unable to make the most of their numbers. Firing at what was often point-blank range, the drilled Dutch soldiers held up even during the most horrific stages of the battle, and their use of firepower with lighter cannon interspersed within the squares of pikemen, for instance, as well as the mass volleys of the musketeers, seemed to have won the day. Maurice's packed musketeers fired volley after volley into the Spanish Turgios as each man wheeled back into the rear of his formation. The men they fired at were arranged in the traditional Spanish Turgio square, with about 1,500 musketeers and 1,500 pikes per square. Clearly from these numbers, the Dutch would have superiority in fire, but the pikemen which the Dutch did have were left to the side. They were ready to rush in at a moment's notice, while Maurice's men fired and fired again into the Spanish mass. It was in many respects the clashing of two distinct military styles, and it thus represents a highly significant moment in the history of early modern European battle tactics and military thought. Whether he invented these tactics or not, what is not up for debate is that Maurice of Nassau managed to leverage them against the Spanish Terrios, or as one Dutch officer put it, This victory was wonderful, as much because he... Maurice, won his enemy's territory as because he won it over a victorious enemy. The battle mostly involved Spaniards and Italians, who were esteemed as the strongest force of the enemy. The drilling and training of the previous years had massively increased the damage which the musketeers of Maurice could inflict. Geoffrey Parker records that 4,000 Spaniards were killed outright by these tactics, nearly half the force which had come to meet Maurice in battle. It should go without saying that the battle was bloody and immensely loud as well. Eyewitnesses were not able to see, thanks to the amount of smoke which rose above the sand dunes around which the battle took place, but they could tell from the noise of the musket and cannons that a serious confrontation was taking place. The experience was an intense two hours in duration, but by its end, the Dutch Republic had had their champion. Learning from this experience, Maurice became utterly convinced of the primacy of the drill and went on to find even easier ways to implement it across the Dutch army, eventually settling on these simple illustrated drill manuals which literally spelled out every movement to raw recruit and instructor alike. Yet, although William Lodwick had modelled his ideas for the drill on the Carthaginian ability to destroy an army far larger than themselves, Newport was not a battle of canny. Maurice had lost 1,000 men killed of his own, and many more were wounded. Furthermore, his own problems with supply persisted, so that he was unable to make use of the victory and pursue the defeated Spaniards. A less organised rabble might well have been shattered and disintegrated altogether by the defeat at Newport, but the years of discipline and professionalism inculcated in the Spanish soldier, which we must not discount, meant that Maurice's victory was important, but that it hardly represented a watershed moment. Maurice had simply come to Newport with a new way of waging war, but there was absolutely no proof that his way was better. In the grand laboratory of military innovation, Newport was one test. 34 years later at the Battle of Nordlingen, the Spanish old ways were harnessed to such great effect 
that a Swedish-German army built in the style of Maurice of Nassau was defeated. A generation after Maurice of Nassau had changed warfare then, the change was by no means universal, and the Spanish were vindicated for sticking to their guns. As far as Maurice of Nassau was concerned, he had tried these new tactics and training methods out in the field, and they had paid off, but much was still needed to be done if the kind of shattering triumphs achieved by Rome were to be his. We must remember that Maurice was not acting as an instrument of anyone's theory. He was a soldier and an innovator who simply wanted to defeat the enemy at the lowest possible cost to himself. While he could not have known it yet, the spread of his ideas would produce new innovators and in time, historians and strategists operating with hindsight would reflect that he had been correct. Following the bloody Battle of Newport, this was by no means wholly certain but further opportunities for additional testing abounded, as there were many more bloody battles still to come. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode, history friends and patrons, and I hope you're happy to be back with me in this series. We've looked here at some important details, like the Dutch and Spanish military systems, what they had in common and how they differed. All of this information will become important once we start to talk later on about the military might of Spain and the achievements of Gustavus Adolphus in our proper 30 Years War series. Thanks to what we are learning here, the era of the 17th century and its warfare won't seem so alien and mysterious. And hopefully then, all of these deep dives into theories, anecdotes and apparently unrelated battles will begin to make sense. Either way, history friends, my name is Zach. And this has been episode 8 of our 30 Years War mini-series on 17th century warfare. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.